Welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Dylan Carmody, and I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach from the U.S. On today's show, we have Dustin Willis, and we'll be diving into all things clinical excellence, communication, and compassion as we unpack his paper, Getting to the Heart of the Patient-Provider Interaction, a Novel Theoretical Framework. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest, and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyze neuromuscular strength, performance, and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. Dustin, what's going on, man? What's up, man? I'm excited to be here. First off, thank you for you know reaching out and thinking to have me. I'm always excited to kind of nerd out on stuff like this, especially with you, man. Been following each other. I don't even remember how we kind of crossed paths, but I love what you're doing out there, man. So I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, it's it's a two way street. That's for darn sure. And um, now I, after you know diving into a lot of your work and seeing what you've been doing, I think. Um, the stuff that you put out and the stuff that you do in combination with the the crowds that you're in um, is is an amazing like one two punch in my opinion just because I think that um, your area of expertise and like your passions really lie in an unsung aspect of not only PT but like sports PT as a whole and just rehab um, and I think that it'll be a really cool conversation for a lot of people um, just to kind of discover and see where all those sorts of things lie but. Um, let's just start with you giving an intro to yourself and we'll pick off from there. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, my name is Dustin Willis. I'm also a physical therapist slash strength coach here in the U S Los Angeles to be specific and, uh, kind of juggle a few things. So my full-time gig is I'm a professor at West coast university here in Los Angeles, where I primarily teach the musculoskeletal content. So, you know, taking students through learning how to do an outpatient orthopedic evaluation and treatment, but we also dive into a lot of this stuff. So how do we, interact with our patients what are the influences of communication and even zooming out further than that like what's the influence of society and culture and all these factors at play when you're trying to help another human being so super fun man i I really dig it and the the way i view it like why i wanted to get into teaching because i did it kind of soon i would say like i graduated pt school in 2014 from loma linda university and i I always knew I wanted to try to teach in some way, but if you would have told me within five years of graduating, I would have been a full-time professor, I would have been like, ah, get out of here, bro. <laughs> but uh, I, I feel like it really expands my reach in a way of like helping the patients of my students and graduates through them, you know, which is kind of cool to think about. Um, and then when I'm not doing that, I'm also a practicing physical therapist with quantum performance. So we mainly do concierge physical therapy. We tend to end up seeing a lot of like professional basketball players, but we'll work with anybody. And uh, it's also allowed me some cool things working with a lot of pro NBA guys and some aspirational NBA guys, college, high school, and things of that nature. So those are the the biggest things. And then this paper that we're going to talk about is the first half of my PhD dissertation, which I'm hopefully, fingers crossed, going to finish this coming summer. And that's back at Loma Linda University as well. So that's kind of me in a nutshell, professionally at least. 
I love that, man. Yeah. And the, uh, the PhD ride is, is something that I've talked with many people about in terms of just the, it's, it's a long and arduous process, but uh, you know, I'm, I am sure that it's, uh, it's paying off at some point. And it's, it's one of those things where I, I always attribute a lot of those sorts of things to, you know, when you're talking about getting your PT degree or those sorts of things, like there's a, there's a semblance of that, that you do that not only for yourself, but also so that you can give back and that you can use your skills for others. Um, but I think a lot of times it's this idea, like a lot of times with PhD studies, you do it a lot more almost like internally, just because it's like a passion of yours and it's something that you really want to pursue. And I think it's, it's really cool just being able to take the time and dive into that, but it's awesome. You're doing that stuff. Yeah, man, it's. I, I was just reflecting on this recently because I actually started this PhD in 2016, which is crazy. So the the Loma Linda one is part time, so it does go a little slower. And then, um, as you know, because we're Instagram friends, uh, I have a special needs, medically complex son. So I took a year leave of absence with all of his stuff going on. So it's stretched it a little bit more. But I'm like, man, I, I got to finish this thing before 10 years, bro. <laughs> Oh, uh, getting there slowly but surely. <laughs> Definitely. Um, one thing that, you know, being the humble person that you are, you did not touch on that I would love to unpack is um, your postgraduate, you know, professional education um, that does not include the PhD in terms of the yeah. routes that you took to get there and kind of how those um, different opportunities molded to, you know, you being the clinician that you are today. Yeah, it's always an interesting conversation for me because uh, I'll get, you know, students or whoever saying they want to go the same route. I'm like, ah, do you really need all that? I don't know. But um, so fresh out of PT school, I continued on with the orthopedic residency. And that was just through a small private clinic down in the San Diego Temecula area called Rancho Physical Therapy. And so I did year-long residency there. And then from there, moved up to Los Angeles so I could do not one, but two fellowships at the same damn time. I know I'm a little bit crazy and we'll get into the reasons why for all this stuff in a second. But um, first up was a lower quarter biomechanics fellowship with Dr. Chris Powers from USC. So I was doing that. And then at the same time, I was in Kaiser Permanente, Southern California Sports Orthopedic Fellowship as well. And then after that, again, reasons we'll get into, I didn't finish. I continued on to a third fellowship and did the Azusa Pacific Human Performance Fellowship. So a lot of it focused on movement, a lot of it trying to, as best I can, get a well-rounded view of a lot of the stuff out here. As you know, there's just so many schools of thought and so many styles of clinicians, and they tend to be siloed, like, oh, I'm this therapist, I'm this therapist, but how do we best integrate all of that was a motivating factor. However, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention how much imposter syndrome was a big motivating factor for me, just feeling like... I got to this point out of PT school, it was like, you should know this or be confident or feel like you're able to help these people. And I just wasn't there. So I kept pursuing that feeling, not realizing that it's a constant pursuit and that you'll never actually arrive there, right? Like, there's no like, oh, you're a guru now, you know all this stuff and you could heal people before you even start talking to them. Like that, that's not really a thing, even though that's what it seemed like, you know, talking with some of my mentors and people that I looked up to. So yeah, a, a lot post-professionally, which uh, we could talk a bit more about and kind of how it shaped me. Yeah, man. Um, it is, it's super cool, especially the, 
I mean, one the the vulnerability that you have in terms of just saying like, you know, what those drivers were for you. But um, beyond that, just kind of understanding this idea of it seems like a common theme that you were looking at through all of your education was this kind of like first principles approach, right? Like what are, what are the underpinnings that I'm trying to find and discover? And, you know, there's a bunch of different routes that people take to try and find those. And yours is quite interesting. Um, yeah. I guess from a, I, this could be a podcast in itself, like in terms yeah. of this question, <laughs> but um, from a, an overarching, maybe like 10,000 foot view, what do you think were the the big pillars or some of like the big underpinnings that you learned throughout that entire journey of residency fellowship 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 yeah yeah man i've reflected on that a lot man and like how much of it was necessary how am i going to use this to try to guide future students and things of that nature and what pieces am i taking and feel like are appropriate to now bring into like entry-level dpt education because from my perspective and i did a podcast man this was a while ago with the movement maestro about does everyone need residency fellowship? And I was like, eh, I don't think we're there right now. We need to raise the floor a little bit and improve the entry level education. Because as you know, being even fresher out than I am, there's a lot that's taught in PT school still that's kind of like, eh, I don't know about this, bro. <laughs> so um, to answer your question, from residency, I think the biggest thing that I took away or one of the major kind of points that I I wouldn't think I was acutely aware of in the moment or even immediately after, but now that I've had some time, was the importance of structure when you're first learning something out and having a framework to work within. Uh, I think just maybe influenced by some of the people I learned from, my style was more free-flowing, which can get a little chaotic and you can get lost in your thought process without that structure to snap back to when you get lost, right? So that was the big thing from there with the second thing from that being the importance of having a sound reasoning process. Like you, you can't jump to conclusions. You have to check yourself and do your due diligence with these things and try to prove yourself wrong, right? The, the goal is to ideally be less wrong as we go along. And uh, I, I think those were even further refined, probably to the level that they should be in the Kaiser program. And uh, of course, I'm biased, but I, I can't speak highly enough about the Kaiser programs. One of the first in our profession in all of the country, they've been going strong with residency fellowship for like 30 something years now. So just the the basic reasoning structure and all the heavy hitters from all these kind of different schools of thought that they bring in and expose you to was huge, huge, huge. Um, and then when we bring in the other two, you know, learning from Chris and this biomechanics approach and then the kind of flip side, so to speak, or just the, another view of the same lens was this Shirley Sarman, Claire Frank informed approach to movement. And really just getting the ability to compare and contrast them like, you know, Shirley slash Claire are big on, you know, the, the art of things like what does movement look like to the nitty gritty details and Chris is more, what does the science say? Like what what's on the tape, the recording, the measurements that we've taken and how can I take what I felt was most valuable from each of those and kind of create my view of things. Uh, I like to highlight 
a transformational moment during that last fellowship with the Azusa Pacific one. I was with Claire Frank, who's a good friend and mentor. And it was one of those moments where I got lost, right? Uh, in front of the patient, I don't know what the heck I'm doing or what direction to go. I'm just looking at her like a deer in the headlights. And she just kind of had this coming to Jesus talk with me. She was like, Dustin, I know you know what Chris Powers would do, what I would do, what this person would do. What would Dustin do? And I was just like, I don't know, Claire. <laughs> but that that was huge for me because I was just, you know, following all these people's trains of thought rather than making it my own. And I think that's really when things started to click and I started to evolve into who I view myself as now today. That's amazing, man. Um, it it's funny. I so a background, I guess, in terms of myself, I've I've played some type of instrument or been some type of like involved with music for I don't know since I was probably like eight or nine years old. And so um, I've been obviously big in terms of like listening to a bunch of different areas. And the last five or ten years, I've probably been on a big blues kick. And so okay. um, listening to like different interviews with artists, they have one kind of thought process has come up where. Um, this one individual and they were asking like, Hey, how did you develop your tone and all those sorts of things? And it was like the, the thought that they came up with was like, I'm never going to play like Eric Clapton, like BB King, like all these like greats. Right. Um, but the way in which I develop my tone is by trying to emulate them. Right. Because you'll never be them, but by sprinkling in a little bit of your influences and by understanding like, Hey, I know this is what Dustin would do, or this is what I know that Shirley Sarman would do, you know, um, and making it, making sure that all of these processes fit within your model and make sense to you has been like one of the things that I've always like harked back to and been like, okay, who are my influences and how does that define like how I can approach things that make sense to me? Absolutely. That's exactly what it was, man. Cause up until that point, I was really just doing my best imitations of all these people I was learning from, right? And I wasn't taking that next critical step of, all right, how do I make this my own? Like, yeah, I could try on and see how this feels, but it's still them. It's not me. I need to make it me. And I think that was when light bulb, because even then, right, I, I had already started the PhD when I was in that fellowship, but I was already thinking, all right, what what's the next thing I'm going to do? What What's the next learning? structured program that I'm going to pursue. I'm going to do a fourth fellowship, like all these crazy thoughts. But with that, it was really when things started to turn and I started to realize, all right, how do I search out first principles and find the connection behind all these different things and different ways that people view stuff and, like you said, make it my own. Most definitely. And I guess uh, in terms of transitioning and how you've made things your own. Um, I'll, I'll be more direct with this question, but, um, you know, within the area of elite sport, there seems to be a large disconnect when it comes to treatment and compassion from a practitioner standpoint. Um, why is that? Ooh, like most things, it's probably multifactorial, right? There's There's probably a lot of influences going on, some of which we're probably not even aware of yet. But the biggest factors that at least I see play out or have experienced thus far in my career is one, you know, at that level of athletic performance, everyone's hunting for that little bit of edge, right? So with that little bit of edge can honestly make a huge difference for an athlete because they're already at such a high level. So it just 
amplifies these things that they try to do or try on to see if they could get a slight edge over someone else. So it really amplifies the perceived importance of, you know, the quote unquote hard skills or these things that we need to learn in terms of performance, strength and conditioning, uh, all these other factors. So I think that gets amplified and maybe rightly so, right? But I think the problem lies when it amplifies at the expense of these other factors at play in terms of connection, compassion, and really trying to go there. Another factor, especially once we get into the professional realm or nearing professional realm, is there's so many cooks in the kitchen, right? Like these athletes are interacting with, I don't know, how many different stakeholders involved in trying to optimize their performance it makes it hard for them to open up and want to connect with any of us because you're just another face in a sea, in a crowd of all these faces of people that they interact with. So there's almost like this additional barrier to that you have to try to break down and show them you really care. Um, those are the two biggest things that initially come to mind when I think of like why this is downplayed. The, the other thing is when you think of from a zoomed out society view, right, this isn't something that is quote unquote sexy in our world, right? Everyone wants to learn the, the best exercise for these things or the, the newest skill to help these athletes. How many times have you seen a con ed class, if ever, about like building better connections and communicating better with your clients or your athletes, right? It just doesn't exist. It's not something that's pushed out there or that is seen as attractive or important even from a zoomed out society perspective. Yeah, the the importance of of those um, ideas, it's it's interesting because I think that, you know, they, they become underplayed because they're often almost like these inherent qualities that people assume to already have or to assume to like, you know, like these are kindergarten skills, right? You know, this is what like you get taught as a young child and, um, you know, you grow up with this and all those sorts of things. And I think like inherently they, they get undermined or underplayed. But um, I think your paper did a really cool job and something that I am a huge fan of in terms of just um, defining terms, right? And just saying like, hey, this is what these things are you know, plain and simple. Um, would you mind just maybe talking about like one or two terms that you feel are most important for this process in terms of understanding really maybe what empathy is or what building rapport really is from a um, practitioner standpoint? Yeah, that, that was honestly hugely motivational for me to try to go out there and do that. Because when you dive into this stuff, there's so many different various variations of definitions and layers to how deep you can go into all this stuff so there wasn't like this uniform all right at the most basic level here are the things that make up trying to communicate and connect with your patient and kind of here's how they interact together so that was a big piece of why I did this um, you know I think back to something the late great Kobe Bryant said and something that I mentioned earlier throughout my process of coming to be who I am is the importance of structure right? Like he says something to the effect of creativity really is derived from having a structure that allows you the freedom to interplay once you define the limits or the kind of key components of what it is you're trying to do. So that's what I was trying to do with this paper, at least give us a basic level understanding because it felt like it didn't exist. But also acknowledging that, you know, any model or kind of means that we use to understand something is always limited, right? I got to credit 
the great Scott Morrison from kind of opening my eyes to that, that you think of a map, right? A map actually isn't a true representation of the world, right? It's, it's, it's false. It's, it's not accurate. It's not to scale. It's not all these other things, but it helps us navigate the real world. So that was my goal. And when I think of the terms and trying to define them, I think the biggest two that jump out to me are empathy and compassion, right? Because they're, they're used interchangeably, even when trying to dive into the literature and figure out, all right, what's the importance or what do these things say about empathy and what do they say about compassion? They'll use the two terms the same way. And it's like they mean the same thing when we maybe intuitively know that that's not true. So it can get a lot more complex than this. And I, I don't want to kind of overly simplify or use a overly reductionist view. But in the simplest terms, you know, empathy is our ability to kind of connect with what it is that person may be feeling or going through, right? So perceiving, processing, responding to what it is that they're sharing in terms of, I may not be going through that, but I can relate to the feelings attached to whatever it is you're experiencing, right? So being empathetic and maybe contrasting that with being sympathetic and that's more like a disconnected connection, if that makes sense. Like, oh, yeah, that must suck, but uh, I don't know anything about that, right? <laughs> but it's more like, oh, yeah, you're frustrated. I know what it's like to be frustrated even though I may not be going through what it is that you're going through, right? So simplest form, that's kind of how I view empathy. Now, compassion is really, in my view, again, simplest form, taking that to the next level. So not only am I aware of whatever it is that's causing you suffering or whatever emotion, and I'm kind of moved by it, but I am driven to action. There's a wish to you know help or see relief or kind of be involved in helping this person find a way out or at least guide the path in some way. Don't necessarily need to have all the answers, but compassion is empathy in action. So adding that action component. And I think if we just start there, that's a good base level understanding. And then, like I said, it can get a lot more complex from there. But at the basic level, I think we need to have the understanding of those two terms. I think that having that understanding is super important as well, especially once you, once we bring up this topic of the, the model itself that you guys are proposing. Um, again, you, you look back to just general like systems, frameworks, uh, models, all these sorts of things. You know, you need to understand the, the component parts that interact before appreciating the, the model or the system as a whole. Um, maybe moving things along a little bit. And now that we have a better understanding of empathy and compassion, um, take as much time as you need, but can you try and unpack the the heart model that you guys have proposed for us? Um, and if it's easy for the uh, listeners to conceptualize or for you to describe, use it in some type of like a, a case report or a, an understanding that you've dealt with personally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, for, for me, it was very... Um, close to home, I guess I would say, and why I needed to do this. Cause we, we think back to what you said about like, it's kind of assumed that we all know how to do this. We all got into healthcare because we're empathetic and compassionate and all these things. So it's not touched on. Like I think back to my PT school experience and there was no discussion of, all right, yeah, we talked about therapeutic alliance, but it's like, all right, well, 
What does that look like? How do you do it? <laughs> How do you go about building an alliance with someone? And so there, there was nothing out there. And so I started seeing these terms pop up and they all seem to be related to this idea of establishing a connection or a therapeutic alliance, if you will. And so they were just kind of just jumbled lists on these random notes I was taking and my PhD advisor, shout out Dr. Everett Lohman, was like, oh, what if you kind of made this into some type of model or flow chart? And so just kind of sitting with them and came up with this idea of what this really looks like or potentially could look like in action. And that's where you get the actual model, which if people are more visual and they want to see it, they can look up the paper. It's open access, which is always helpful. But um to use like a case example, and I'll try to make it as general as possible because I think that's better rather than going too narrow right off the bat. Uh, the, the model kind of starts as one concept that both sides experience together and then splits off because it is still two unique individuals that are interacting and all these kind of components interacting. And then we kind of come back together once theoretically both sides are on the same page and that's kind of what we'll work through. So the, the key in my opinion and what I've seen in the literature to kind of unlock this whole process is this concept of vulnerability and authenticity. And like most things, you know, this isn't something I created or can take credit for. The eye-opening thing that I read was Nicole Piamonti's book, Afflicted. And she gets deep into the philosophy of all this, but essentially we have to connect with the vulnerability of whatever this person coming to see us might be dealing with. And we can often lose that, right? Like say athlete, we'll just general athlete, we won't use any names, but the reason I think this is even more important in this realm is because how much of athletes' identities are tied to their sport or activity, right? So you really have to take a second and step back and be like, wow, this person just tore their ACL or whatever it may be, and it's maybe their first injury that they've dealt with. And now they're really having to reckon with, oh my God, that thing that makes up my identity, I can't do anymore. Who am I if I can't do this thing, right? And so being able to step back and appreciate that really kind of opens your eyes to now get the second piece of that, which is authenticity. And it's more than just being like true and honest and all these things. It's really connecting at a human level. Like, oh man, this person is struggling with a thing related to their identity because they've done this sport for so many years or whatever it may be. How can I relate to that? So we're almost skipping ahead to empathy in a way, right? And kind of unlocking a little bit sooner, like, oh, wow, I can see how that could be tough. Let me take off this mask of how maybe I think I should be presenting myself or what I've been told in terms of how I need to present myself and truly just connect with this person on an authentic human level because we're both human beings that experience suffering and run into all these roadblocks and not to get too morbid, but eventually we'll die, right? <laughs> like, we got to go there in a way. So that's that's huge, in my opinion. Like I said, it's the key that unlocks everything. So that sets the stage for kind of the cascade of events that kind of make up the rest of the model. So next piece, the kind of components split up and go into, all right, these are two human beings still that are separate, not one entity. And we need to consider the needs of both sides. So you've just connected with that athlete who's torn their ACL and now they're struggling with their identity. Well, they came to you for a specific reason, right? Because 
if we look at us as physical therapists, we're the movement experts, we're the person that rehabs and gets this person back to this piece. And when you look at the literature, it can almost present like a false dichotomy, right? Like there's soft skills and there's hard skills and we need to keep them separate because they are separate. And so really this piece here for me was like, I don't want to downplay it, but almost a place marker that no, the the hard skills, the, the science stuff is absolutely a strong piece of all of this, right? They are coming to you for your expertise and you need to be an expert as best you can because that's why they are coming to you. So that's kind of the athlete or patient side. And on the flip side, the provider side is either acknowledging all the work that you put in, all the time, all the hours, all the studying, but also continuing to do so and continuing to keep yourself honest and still pursuing that excellence so that you can meet them there and be that clinical expert and show off all the things that you've learned and why they come to see you. So I wanted to make sure that was a part of it because it's often like seen as two separate things and it's all woven together, especially when you look into some of the literature that like surveys, you know, uh, patients and what are they looking for? And it's always like, I want them to care. I want them to listen, but I want them to be good. right? <laughs> can, can I have both? And that was something Nicole said in one of the podcasts I listened to her and she was like, why do I need to choose? Why can't I have somebody that's clinically excellent and gives a shit about what I'm experiencing as a human being? Right. So that was important in my eyes to put that in there. As we kind of continue on through this process, the next piece on the athlete or patient side is this idea of open floor freedom. And for me, it switches a little bit when we're talking pro athletes versus the general public. When you think of general public, you think of the structure of our healthcare system and how, for lack of better expression, it's kind of jacked up, right? We're expected to see more and more people, less and less time for each individual. So when you look at like how much time does a patient get to talk to their provider and kind of tell them about what's going on? Well, depending on who you read, it's anywhere from 11 to 23 seconds before they're interrupted and like the provider's like, yo, we, we got to keep this thing rolling. Like, that's cool, but here's what I need to know. It's like, bro, like... They have the answers. They're the expert on them and their lived experience. We need to allow them the space to express what it is they think is going on. And there's this cool little, um, I wouldn't call it a meme, but I use it to get my students' thoughts kind of spinning a little bit where it talks about how we as providers often kind of be like, oh man, they use Dr. Google. Here they come with all this silly stuff that they think is right. And the inner, the provider is like telling the patient like, hey, don't confuse your Google search with my X amount of years of schooling. But then the patient responds with, hey, don't confuse your one hour lecture with my 10, hour, 10 years of dealing with this thing. And it's like, whoa, all right, both sides have a point, right? So we got to acknowledge that. The reason I say it switches with athletes is, because of something we mentioned a minute ago where there's just so many people that they are interacting with, right? And so it's not that they don't necessarily have the open floor. They've almost had it too much, right? <laughs> They've seen 15 people for this one problem. <laughs> so the small little switch I would make there and from the provider perspective, it's still about actively listening and giving them the floor. But we have to explore what are their beliefs, about what's been going on. What have they been told by all these 15 people about what their problem is and what do they think needs to happen for them to get back to doing what it is they want to be doing? So there's some nuance that, like I said, I think switches and 
comes with the limitation of trying to create a model, but that was an important distinction I think was helpful for us to talk about. Then from there, so if we've given them the floor to explore beliefs, say what they think is going on, all that stuff. The next thing that really from a patient or athlete perspective is they want to feel like we understand them, right? And so my students will laugh because I always reference movies that are getting older and older as the years go by. So one of my all-time favorites is Step Brothers. Please tell me you've seen Step Brothers, Dylan. Okay, you're acknowledging me. Oh, of course. <laughs> top five, right, so. top five, for sure. There's the scene where uh, they start going to therapy, right? And so Will Ferrell's on the couch and the therapist is like, tell me about your parents' divorce. How old were you? And he says, like 13, I think, or something like that. And then she goes, oh, yeah, that's a tough age. And he's like, yeah. And then it really hits him. He goes, yeah. <laughs> and that's when he's like, I love you. <laughs> Right. But he's just he wanted he felt understood. He felt seen. And that's what our patients are looking for, even if we don't fully understand what it is they're going through. And that's where the provider side of it comes into play. It's this idea of emotional intelligence, being able to identify the maybe sometimes unspoken emotions that are tied with a lived experience like a. Uh, for, for me, right? I'm a caregiver for my son. Like, oh man, that must be exhausting. Like, yeah, dude, I'm burnt out, like, right? Like that that's big for someone interacting with me to acknowledge how hard it is to be a full-time caregiver with no end in sight to the need for caregiving, right? So that's kind of the next piece. And for athletes, I, I do believe it's still there. They want to be heard and understood and seen and maybe even amplified because of what happened or we discussed on the previous step that they've seen 18 people for this problem. And it's like, do any of them really care or understand truly what it is that I'm feeling or going through? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just going to close off and not really give them a chance to connect with me. And so, again, not to speaking to my biases, but why this is even more important when we get into the pro sports world. So from there, we can take that understanding a step deeper, I think. And when you view from the athlete or the patient, it's all about feeling validated, right? When you think about being validated, it's not necessarily that your view or what it is you're experiencing is true or right or scientifically correct, right? I just think of the classic I'm going to pain science education this person, right? And it's like <laughs> you almost invalidate the person if you go there too soon and you start talking about the brain and they're like, whoa, 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 hold on. Are you saying this is all in my head? Well, technically, I guess, but it, it almost creates disconnect when you start doing that because you have to validate not only do I understand, but man, what you are telling me about or maybe not telling me about the feelings you're experiencing are valid. Like I get it. <laughs> I would be frustrated or exhausted too. I would be lost and not know what my identity is if I played basketball for 20 years and now I've got my first serious injury and I don't know who I am anymore. Man, I, I get that. And that is really where emotional intelligence goes to that step deeper that we kind of already just defined of empathy, like truly connecting with and understanding what it is that someone is experiencing. And then for me, why the model got the name it did was I truly believe we talked about vulnerability, authenticity is the key. Compassion is the literal and figurative heart of this whole thing. When you have that level of understanding that we just kind of outlined down and now you combine, all right, 
I got my training. I got all these things that I've learned how to do and want to be able to do. Let me, let us discuss how we're going to go about helping you get to where it is you want to be, which is huge for the athlete, right? Because they need to know you are not only can relate to them, but are on their side and willing to do whatever it takes to help them. So that's a big piece why I think this is the literal and figurative heart of this whole model. And that is where things kind of come back together and not to take away from the fact that you're two, still two separate humans kind of living different experiences. But now we're on the same page. We're on the same team. We're going about this together and we're going to make all these decisions together because we understand one another so well from there. Right. And that's where things kind of flow from there. And we start seeing these other terms that are in the literature and maybe not as well defined. So this idea of congruence slash rapport. So you see those kind of used interchangeably. And that's why I use them together in this next section. So like when you think of congruence, it's this mindful, for lack of a better word, uh, genuineness to not only express what I think, but also respectfully and transparently kind of saving space for that other person to come in and bring their two cents to the equation, which we lose a lot of the times. I don't know if that's been your experience too, but when you think about like a plan of care, how often is it just us sitting there typing away, creating like, this is what's going to happen. These are the goals we're going to achieve. Here's how we're going to get there. And I think it's even more important in athletes because they almost kind of automatically defer to, oh, you're, you're the expert, whatever you say, right? Like I just had that experience with the NBA guy the other day. And I'm like, well, true, I am the expert, but you're the expert on your body and what's going on in your life. So I need to consider that too. So making sure we have that, even though we're kind of on the same page connected. And then rapport is maybe easy to understand, but it's just this friendly relationship, two people that understand each other well, right? So kind of what we described already with bringing compassion together. So we're saving space for both of our opinions and we're on the same page, on the same wavelength with these opinions and kind of mapping out where to go from here. So once we have that congruence and kind of rapport, connectedness, now we start to build confidence slash trust in one another, right? So those are pretty easy or straightforward definitions. So just faith and belief that the other person's going to act in a right or proper way and we can kind of trust them. So assured reliance on just that. They're going to kind of make all these decisions, appreciate what we have to say and what's going on for us so that we can continue to the last piece, which is this idea of concordance or shared decision-making. So it's all getting here. And really, if we want to define this even better, maybe I would say, shout out to Eric Mira, but this is the idea of true informed consent, right? Like I am informed on what we think is going on, all of my available options, Let's make this decision together. So the athlete is still considering your expertise and kind of dealing with these types of things, but you're also doing the same thing and allowing them the ability to make a decision about what's going on for their life, their body, all these factors. So that's kind of the core of the framework. Um, if you pull it up and look at it, you'll see these kind of little arrows on the outside talking about reflection because 
without reflection, how do we really know or have a checks and balances in place to say like, all right, how am I doing on these fronts? And so it kind of happens in real time, maybe faster than we're able to process, but also after the fact. And that's where the true magic happens in my eyes. Like, all right, how did that go? How was I in terms of being vulnerable, authentic? How was I in terms of appreciating my clinical expertise, knowledge? How did I do in terms of active listening? So from the model, you just see reflection going from compassion back to the start. But it's really occurring at any step in this process or even at the end of the process, going back and looking at all these pieces kind of individually and collectively. And then the last piece is just appreciating, well, how are all these things being communicated? And so we think about what we're saying verbally, how we're presenting ourselves visually, and how much of a factor that is, which we probably underappreciate <laughs> physically in terms of like the importance of human touch and all these kind of what we would maybe say foo-foo stuff we see out there in the world of pro athletics. Well, why are they effective or why do athletes kind of come and request them? So there's a lot to unpack there. Then, of course, the emotions that are being communicated, a lot of times interwoven between all the other modes of communication that we're discussing. And then the last piece is this intuitive piece. And for lack of a better term, I kind of put it here as a placeholder, right? Because when you think of something like the placebo effect, really it's oftentimes things that we don't fully understand just yet, right? So as we begin to learn more, then we realize, oh, that wasn't necessarily placebo, but there are these contextual factors of A, B, and C. So, And then just how much of interaction can be just like this gut feeling like th this is what I'm feeling and maybe I can't really explain it or don't know the reasons why yet so I wanted to hold space for that because as we start to learn more about psycho neuroimmunology or endocrinology we start seeing how much the human experience really is like this not necessarily a body or we always hear the the car, like a car breaking down, right? But it's this interconnected system of all these things that are always at play and influence each other. And we still have so much to learn in that realm. So that's kind of why I kept it there. And I feel like I've been talking for an hour, but that's the, the motto. <laughs> oh. Dustin, I think that was, that was great. And it's I think it's super helpful to just, you know, hear the model pretty much laid out, right? Because um, like the model outlines, you know, it, it gives people time to reflect on it, right? And iterate and think about it. One thing as you were describing it that I was thinking about was we had talked before about this idea of like a first principles approach. Um, and it's it's quite funny because even though a lot of times when people hear that, they think about a lot more of those like hard skills of like, you know, like the tactical, technical things about rehab. Um this model is very similar. And what you just said was essentially, you know, you as a rehab provider, defining your role, defining expectations, establishing rapport, right? And doing all the things that we know are important from a first principles approach, you know, building that therapeutic alliance and understanding, making sure that there's a shared decision-making aspect to this. Um, but I think that it's it's so important to I, just acknowledge that, I think, because oftentimes we as practitioners like to 
think about um, a certain concept in its own box of where we learned it and not be able to apply that to something else. Um, and I think that this this model is a perfect example of how you can apply your first principles approach that we talk about from a tactical and technical standpoint into this more uh, vulnerable space. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And like I said, that was a big driving force for me was I wanted to create some form of structure that we can begin to give people the creativity to expound upon or dive deeper. I'm not here to say this is the end-all, be-all. This is how it has to be, and this is the only way you're going to build a connection with your patients. Absolutely not. I'm not even saying it's perfect or that it's not missing some things because like we discussed at the top of this, all models are missing something or inaccurate at their core, right? I'm just trying to give us a starting point like, all right, Here's what it seems makes sense from a kind of flow and what the literature says of all the key components. How can we now, using the structure, help us better prepare entry-level clinicians or even clinicians already practicing to do this in a more structured way? Because having that structure is really what allows us the freedom to then be creative and deviate and see kind of what other areas maybe need to be explored a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're creating like the the guardrails for exploration, which I I love. Um, I think a, a big reason, or one of the big reasons why I wanted you on the podcast was I think I I don't know anybody more equipped to be able to have a conversation about working with professional athletes and having these imposter beliefs or imposter syndrome. Um, I would love to just kind of riff a little bit just on how you have had personal experience or what advice you may be giving to um, either people currently in the pro sport era or area or people navigating and trying to get into that area um, in terms of, you know, working with these imposter beliefs and um, trying to reconcile those as they work with these athletes. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because we talked about at the top and a big driving force for why I did all the crazy stuff post DPT, right? And you would think like, oh man, he's done all this training, he's got it all figured out, right? He knows all the answers. I see why these athletes are going to work with him, but that's not reality. And something that again I had to kind of get awoken to was this notion of there's not. A destination that you arrive to where you have it all figured out and then you have all the answers. This is a constant journey where you're constantly refining your lens, refining your first principles, refining everything because science, its nature is inherently unstable. It's constantly changing, right? So there could ever really be a way to arrive at that point realistically if we truly are being scientific in nature. So That was kind of eye-opening for me to appreciate and has allowed me not necessarily to get rid of imposter syndrome, but almost reframe it as like, there's a certain degree of it that I now view as healthy because once you feel like you've got it all figured out, that's probably when you've lost, right? Like that's when we get complacent. That's when we start just getting trapped in our ways of thinking. And so you almost always have to be questioning everything and looking like that meme of what's the name from It's Always Sunny, like all these interconnecting lines and stuff. So I've reframed imposter syndrome and trying to view it to a certain degree as at least components of it being healthy. Now, that being said, doesn't mean I don't still struggle at the time because 
so much of this world, you know, social media is changing and opening the, the curtain or pulling the curtain back a little bit, so to speak, so we could see all these things that these athletes are doing and rehab and training and all this stuff. But so much of it is kind of mythical, right? Like we just see, shout out to my friend and technically boss, Andy Barr, who did Kevin Durant's rehab after his Achilles tear, just like, Oh my God, I don't know what he did, but he worked some magic because Kevin Durant came back and is still performing at such a crazy level and it got our company a lot of attention, right? Because everyone wants to know what the heck did he do with KD to get him back to this level. And I I can already see it's going to happen with Aaron Rodgers and what's going on with his Achilles tear now too. So um, it's hard because of that kind of everything is mythical and kind of behind the curtain. So you don't really get to see how much these people that work with pro athletes are just like you for whatever reason, they just have been blessed with these opportunities that maybe if you want, you haven't got to yet, or you just haven't known how to put yourself in the places to get those opportunities. So those two things kind of work in concert to help me just reminding myself that a certain amount of questioning (laughs) everything is healthy and now that we're getting to see with social media so much more behind the curtain it kind of is refreshing to see like oh they're just figuring it out like I am too (laughs) there's there's not a huge difference between this person that is the Lakers PT that's like oh my god that's so cool they're they're just like me We're, we're all human in a sense and all just doing the best we can with the information we have at the time and so I just Try to remind myself of those two things as best I can. I love that. And and it's it's so true too, just in that I, I think, I mean, social media is, is an interesting uh, topic that I think we can maybe save for a later date. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think it is, it's interesting. And like, I think a personal belief or personal feeling that I can reflect on is um, seeing people and like, knowing like, as I've developed over the years, again, I'm barely six months out of PT school. So I've got a lot of growing to do. Um, I'm very well aware of that. But what I've noticed is um, rather than, you know, over time seeing individuals and being like, oh my gosh, that's so cool or that's that's so awesome. Rather than myself feeling more prepared or more equipped, it just seems more normal of like what somebody's doing or what someone's posting online or whatever it is, right? It's like, oh, okay, yeah, of course they're doing that because of these sorts of principles, this sort of application. I still have the same exact thoughts and beliefs in myself in terms of like, oh, I don't know if I could do that. I'm not sure about that. Just because those are, again, I like the the perspective. I can't remember who I heard it first from, but um, the, the idea of imposter thoughts rather than imposter syndrome, you know, of just like, you know, like there, there's something that everybody has and it's like a normal part of being a rehab clinician as well as just being a human. Right. And so I think having those ideas of like, okay, these are just thoughts that I'm having that everybody else has. Um, but it is interesting to see that I've developed, like as I've grown, I guess, over the, the years of like seeing something and rather than me um, feeling better about how I interact with people, it's more just being like, okay, that just seems more normal of how other people do things, you know? Exactly. Exactly. It's for lack of a better word, normalizing these feelings and it applies to any feeling kind of like you're alluding to, right? The, key isn't that we need to try to never experience negative emotions because that wouldn't be realistic. It's the not getting swept away by those emotions. It's giving yourself a second between stimulus and response to be like, okay, that's interesting that I'm feeling like that. Let me explore why that is or just 
letting it be what it is. It's it's when it sweeps you away and you're kind of just spiraling out of control, going down this rabbit hole of feeling like not good enough, not prepared enough, all these things. And you, you highlight another factor that I would probably add to that discussion now that I'm thinking about a little bit deeper is just remaining connected to those first principles, right? Because when you can do that, and the inevitable comparison that comes with social media playing such a large role in our lives nowadays, you can really explore like, okay, that's cool. I understand from a first principle perspective kind of why they went there, even though it might not be the same way that I would have gone there, but it's guided by the same first principle of trying to achieve this outcome. And when you can do that, then you start to appreciate like, okay, like, there's all these different flavors of ice cream. That's them. They're mint and chip, right? I'm over here cookies and cream, though. We're both delicious. <laughs> oh, I love that. I, I got to say, I'm more of a mint chip guy, so we, we can agree to disagree I, on that. I, I would have flipped that as well. <laughs> That's why I was the first one that came to mind was mint and chip, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. Um, okay, Dustin, I, I want to be wary of taking up too much of your time, but um, just a, one or two more questions here for you. Um, you had added in um, something that I think is super important, and I just kind of want to give you the floor because I'm not totally sure where you'll go with it. But um, we've alluded to like different, you know, the idea of like culture or society in terms of like the influence on um, the rehab industry about sports PT around all these sorts of things and just clinical development as a whole. Um, can you just touch on some of maybe the cultural or societal shifts that you think should be um, occurring in order to help, you know, uplift the profession? Yeah, I mean, of course, my opinion's biased, right? But when we think about the societal structure or the culture, I guess is probably better because if you think of society, it's more the way things are structured. Culture is more the interactions of those structures, right? So the culture of healthcare really needs to start valuing this stuff more. Like I said, I'm biased. You know, I wrote the paper. Of course I want that, right? But <laughs> there's a reason behind that because if you dive into the paper, I, I really try to highlight how much we actually do know about the importance of these factors. But then it begs the question for me, all right, well, why is this not a thing that is viewed more importantly or we see as a big piece of education of healthcare providers or as continuing education courses? Like, what are the factors that are limiting that? Because it, it's, it's painfully obvious. I think my paper has like damn near 90 references, right? Like, there's a lot of literature on all these things individually, so... From my personal experience, like I alluded to my son, you know, he's medically complex, special needs, literally every specialty healthcare you could think of, he's involved in or he or she are involved in his care. So I interact with a wide spectrum and I would stereotypically think those working with children would be the best at this, right? Like that's stereotypical, but it's, I think, a fair thought. And that hasn't been the case. Not to say that our whole experience has been bad. We've had some amazing providers. We've also had some shitty ones. 
<laughs> so it just begged the question for me, like, why? Like, why is this not more of a thing? And a big piece, I think, is the societal structure of our healthcare system in this country, right? There's, there's no escaping that when we talk about the U.S. and all the things at play with where, you know, it's driven so much by the pharmaceutical and insurance companies and we're getting less and less reimbursement and less and less time with our patients. And so something like this, if there's not a structure in place to at least start to define what it is or how we go about doing it, of course it's going to be the first thing off of the table. Like, oh, yeah, we get rid of that. That's not as important. We don't even know how to define that. And anyone coming into healthcare already has that anyway. So we're good, right? <laughs> so that's the biggest thing that I would say I think a shift needs to occur and it kind of involves society and culture. When we look at professional athletics, it's almost – worse i would say right like we that was kind of what started this whole conversation is like when you think athletics probably the last thing on your list is like oh i need to be compassionate and empathetic and caring with this person right because there's such a huge search for that little thing that is hopefully going to make a huge difference in that athlete because they're so highly trained and again because of all the factors that we've already discussed they have so many cooks in the kitchen all these factors at play, so many stakeholders involved in the process, right? You got, if you're the PT, you're dealing with a head coach, a strength coach, an ATC, the agent, their family, all these people involved in the process. And I was like, it can get dizzying for us. So imagine what that athlete feels like. So if they have additional walls up, be like, oh yeah, there's just too many people here. I need to protect myself. I'm not going to let anybody in. It, for me, amplifies the importance of this within the culture of professional athletics because you know what the best exercise is for ACL rehab or whatever X diagnosis we could come up with? The one your patient is going to do. <laughs> and why do they end up doing something? Because they believe in it and or you, right? So when you can establish that connection, it opens up everything else. Without it, you are fighting an uphill battle. No matter how good you are at what you do, it doesn't matter if they're not going to do it or at least be bought in, connected with you. And so, yeah, without talking for hours, those are kind of how I view society and culture on a large scale, but within the kind of professional athletics world. I can't think of a better way to wrap this up. That's That was awesome. Um so Dustin, from this, you know, paper as a whole, if you're trying to speak to the audience, essentially, and just let them know, you know, what are some key points that they can take away from this paper? But maybe even more importantly, you know, what are some things that they shouldn't take away from this paper? What is this paper not telling them? Yeah, I, if anything, I would hope that it is providing at least some semblance of structure for people to start to understand what makes up these kind of loosely defined terms that we get hurt, tossed around all the time. In our world, a PT therapeutic alliance is probably the biggest one, right? We, we say it all the time, but do we actually know what it means? Maybe you do if you've read some of the papers, but even some of those de definitions are like, ah, we could probably be a little clearer with this. So the biggest takeaway is hopefully it starts to outline, at least at the most basic level, these are the components that make up trying to establish 
connection with my patients and being able to communicate well with them. What I don't want people to take away from this is that, again, it's an end-all, be-all. This is the only way. This is a way. (laughs) Literally just dove into the literature, had all these notes of all these concepts, and put it together in a way that made sense for my brain. And that's what you have on the paper here. So it's not to say that other papers that maybe try to do this in the future are better, worse, or the same. Hopefully it builds from this and makes it even better. That would be the goal, right? Is As time goes on, we start to have a better and better understanding. And to my knowledge, this is the first time something like this has been done. So yeah, I expect it to be incomplete and need a lot of work in the future. Maybe even by me. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But don't think that you can't question this. Don't think that it's going to be a perfect representation of everything that goes into interacting with another human being because there's just so much nuance and detail and probably a lot that we don't even understand fully just yet. More room for part two of the dissertation I'm hearing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe part three because part two is really what started this whole process. So like, Uh, One of my dissertation committee members did some pretty cool research about the healing effects of laughter. So it makes me think of the movie Patch Adams, right? R.I.P. Robin Williams, one of the greats. Um, And just why laughter is so therapeutic. So he took blood samples before, during, and after. People watched, like, it was like a stand-up comedy routine or something and saw that it changed some biomarkers of stress. So... From there, I was like, well, what if we could show the same thing happens when we are compassionate, empathetic, caring with our patients? So I'm not taking blood samples because, you know, this day and age, people aren't as willing. But we're taking saliva samples and seeing what happens or what the relationship is between how the patient rated the provider, the provider rated themselves, and those biomarkers of stress we find in the saliva. So that's actually part two. And then maybe from there expand upon or improve the model and later versions. That sounds super interesting. And I will uh, definitely keep my eyes peeled for whenever that comes out. But um, Hopefully this coming summer, man. Dustin, <laughs> yeah. um, I just got one last question for you, a little bit more just lighthearted. Um, knowing our audience and also knowing your um, background and expertise, you know, in pro sport, sports science, SNC, all of those sorts of things, um, who would you recommend as a future guest on the show? Oh, man. There's see, and this is where I'm going to show my ignorance because I don't even know everyone that you've already had. So if I say someone that's already been on, my apologies. But um, man, who am I? Uh, we've already mentioned some people, right? So Eric Muir has been a huge influence on me uh, personally, professionally. He's doing that cool elite rehab basketball conference, which I went to the first one this past summer in Vegas. If you're looking to get in the basketball world, I highly recommend it. And he's just a wealth of knowledge that has shaped so many of us, probably yourself included. Has he already been on? Um, no, not yet. And okay. uh, yeah, we'll we'll be working that angle for sure. Yeah, Eric for sure. I've mentioned Scott Morrison, who his uh, sloptimal loading course really kind of opened my eyes to viewing this idea of optimal and do we really need to get there? So that's a, another kind of big player for me. Oh man. Recently, I've kind of been into or at least following the work of uh, David Gray. So David Gray's rehab stuff, his uh, Achilles program is, is pretty legit, man. I've 
dealing with some Achilles tendinopathy myself and been trying it out. You know, we tend to try things out on ourselves first and foremost. So he'd be a good one. Um, the homie Andy Chen is doing some good things with his movement, physical therapy performance. He's man, I feel like I'm forgetting so many people. I don't want anyone to get mad at me, but <laughs> those, <laughs> those are, are the awesome. first names that popped to mind, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I that's that's awesome. I think I the only person I think that we've had on from that was Scott. So um, definitely got some people that we can chat with, and uh, I I appreciate the recommendations, um, Dustin. Thank you so much for being on. I think this is a a new perspective for the informed performance crowd. Um, and I think it'll be one that's well received. And, you know, I think a lot of people will have a lot to take away from this. So I really appreciate your time chatting with us. Um, and, you know, wishing you the best of luck. If there's anything that, uh, you know, people can do to reach out to you or connect with you or anything like that, feel free. Um, let the people know. Yeah, well, again, bro, thank you so much for reaching out and setting this up. Uh, it's been a privilege to chat with you and kind of share my perspective and what I've created to hopefully help people, help their patients and all that stuff. So if people want to reach out to me, I'm probably the most active on Instagram. So at dwillofthenine, so dwill of the zero nine is my handle there um you could also email me probably my uh teaching email is the best it's kind of long though so it's du like the first two letters in dustin du willis at west coast university dot edu those would be the two easiest ways i would say for people to get in touch with me perfect well dustin i really appreciate your time and uh wishing you the best of luck thanks man right back at you bro